myth, magic, medicine, and everything in between. Two doctors talking. Hi, welcome again to Myth, Magic, Medicine. And today I have the lovely Rebecca Tapia, who is not only a physiatrist, is that still the term that's used? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So I see people write PMR. Um, But she's also designing because for living quarters because she's interested in multi-generational living for personal reasons right Rebecca you had your grandmother move in yes I did yeah yeah would you would you like to explain a little bit of the circumstances not too personal stuff but you know just how how you came to have your grandmother move in with you sure um so first off thank you for inviting me to these conversations I, I really think that's how people kind of learn and become aware is really just through mm-hmm. good conversations. And I love that format. So, so thank you for having me here. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a physiatrist or a PM&R physician, and we're very focused on quality of life and function. And um, about eight years ago, my husband and I had the opportunity to custom build our home here in San Antonio. And at the same time, my grandmother had gone to live with my aunt. Her husband had passed away several years before and she kind of bounced around different family members, um, primarily helping them uh, and getting some help herself. And actually, it's around Easter time when we're recording this, and it was Easter um, of 2014 when I went to visit her, and I noticed that she was not um, able to use the bathroom in the house that she was in. And I asked her about it, and she said, um, oh, it's too narrow for me to get in with my walker, so I just take a sponge bath and you know, work around it. And um, as I like to say, my head exploded. (laughs) It'd be like, I was thinking like maybe a dermatologist who's, you know, kids are getting constant sunburns or something. It's just, um, you know, it it just was antithetical to me that my grandmother, somebody I loved very much, I was very close to, um, she taught me how to read and write and swim. Uh, We grew up, you know, very close to each other. And I just felt at that moment, just that I I was already going to be building a house. And I thought I need to solve around this and have her come live with us. And then my, my brain got to thinking, you know, she's so pleasant and has so many, so many incredible life stories to share that it would be good for my children too. It'd be wonderful um, for your kids. How oh, old are yeah. your children? How old my, were they then? <laughs> so I was a um, pregnant with twins at the time. Uh, so my twins are now uh, eight years old. And so it, it, you know, it was partially selfish too. It's not hard, you know, it's not a bad idea sometimes to have a third adult in the house that mm-hmm. um, can can help or just be around to, to get packages or things like that. Or even so. just to have those long, long conversations with two-year-olds when they just want to come and say stuff to you and you're trying to do other things and have pay attention. <laughs> One of our favorite things, uh, my son had some, some difficulty uh, getting the reading part down and I would just send him over. She has a sort of a, uh, what I would call like a mother-in-law suite, but um, mm-hmm. a, it's a ta- an apartment attached to the side of our house. Uh, so we have a, a room, I mean, a door between our house and, and her apartment. And mm-hmm. so I send my son there frequently just to read because sometimes I can take a lot of patience to work with a new reader going through line by line. And and mm-hmm. she enjoyed it, he enjoyed it. And so I, I, I you know, it, there are some misconceptions about multi-generational living that they're always unilateral that the um, younger people are taking care of the older people and that's actually not true it's more often the opposite as uh, when we were chatting before um, that that kind of living is really helpful for um, child rearing or child care it can be helpful for um, socialization it can be helpful for just sharing the tasks of a house especially if Right. Um, mom and dad are working and, and those types of things. So that's how we yeah, came and, to and, it. And remember too, that socialization is not a one-way street. It's not just that an older person is feeling lonely. Children really benefit from having that more people involved in their lives who clearly love them. Yes, so it's yeah, wonderful. It's, and you had twins and you didn't really have to split. You could just have grandma look after one and you could concentrate on the other right. one. <laughs> No, it was, it's been a, and I always say, I mean, it's been one of the most beautiful things um, I've ever been able to do in my life. And part of that's because of the design. And I became, Mm -hmm. you know, the design works for us. And we thought about it ahead of time. And I spent a lot of time um, working on the design to make sure that her privacy and independence were protected, um, that our privacy was protected, and then the flow was good. So this wasn't sort of an afterthought, you know, extra bedroom type thing. This was a very intentional uh, design. Right. But it's obviously intended to be a permanent 
if she's going to remain with you as long as she can in an independent way, more or less. Yes. Yeah. So it's a fully it's a full apartment. It is bathroom, it's, everything. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it even has a washer dryer uh, attached to it. And you know, when I was designing it, the pre I don't know, this is pressure, but I thought, you know, she's gonna spend the rest of her natural life in this environment. Mm -hmm. This isn't somebody who had planned on moving multiple times. And and so I really had to design thinking, you know, I'm not sure how long she's going to live, but I, I knew what her health conditions were um, that were affecting her mobility and her quality of life. And that was really where I started with the design uh, and thinking backwards from there. Uh, she's mm -hmm. not a wheelchair user. She hasn't been, she does use a walker uh, and it is very conducive to that as well. So I had so much fun doing that. I just kept sort of doing it as a hobby and then eventually as a business. Did you did you think ahead so that it would be able to be converted to to be wheelchair friendly? It is Should all wheelchair friendly be. now. Okay. Yeah, it was designed. Yeah. She just hasn't yeah. um, gotten uh, progressed to that point. Yeah, we're possibly jumping ahead, but um, what about if you if you're a designer? Presumably, you are going to just design houses for your family. Um, <laughs> do you do retro design because you know I live in a, a house that was built in 1918. It's not particularly useful for me sometimes as I approach 70. The stairs sometimes are a bit steep, uh, but but I love my house. <laughs> right. So do, do you help people who want to stay where they are, but don't have the luxury of building fresh? Yeah. So so there's the, the brand new builds like we did. Obviously, those are the most uh, easy to work with. And then there's additions, which are also um, fairly easy to work with. They'll ha have some space limitations, but renovations are really the challenging part of it because you're you're working with existing load-bearing walls and those types of things. So I consider myself more of a design consultant um, mm -hmm. as far as looking at it and editing it and thinking of it through the the eyes of a physiatrist or a physician who's worked with people in the aging population or people with with different abilities, and and really taking that point of view. So the design industry, unlike medicine, has not really adopted uh, a trans or interdisciplinary approach usually mm -hmm. an architect and a builder, maybe a maybe an interior designer. Yeah, uh, we do need to remember that it isn't age necessarily that takes your mobility from you. You can be right. really young and, and need a wheelchair. So Right. And that gets back to, to universal design is another movement, which is a little bit different, but that's this idea that we should be designing all homes to be usable by people of all different mobility levels. Uh, you can see it, commercial spaces have obviously gone that way partially because of the ADA rules here in, in the States. Uh, but but I, I truly believe residential will go that way eventually, yeah. much like we look at energy efficiency, we'll look at usability of the home. Right. One of the things that each of the houses, I've all of my houses, this is actually the youngest house I've lived in. Oh my <laughs> goodness. All, all mine all. Um, but one of the things that is always a challenge for me, I, I always make sure there's a downstairs bathroom <laughs> and grab right. bars. But um Getting people into the house is almost every house I've had has had steps to gain access. So, right. yeah, we have wedges and things. So if I know somebody's coming with a wheelchair, but I would like people to pay more attention to entrance ways if they could. Very, um, and I'm glad you mentioned that. So for people who are, are differently abled or using a mobility device, it feels very hostile to them uh, mm -hmm. when they, or they, you know, as much as I've talked to them about it, it almost feels like the home is is off limits. They they come up and there's you know eight steps up to the front door, and that's uh, psychological as well as far as how invited do they feel to share that space with somebody right. else. And I, obviously people aren't thinking like that when they're buying homes. And sometimes you can't, you know, not be if the home's in the perfect place and it's going to be that way. But even thinking about the rear entrances uh, being uh, you know uh, smooth entrances or, or zero you know. Uh, sorry what i'm saying like in a level entry through the back is right. uh can be really helpful but if that's through an old garage that's got tons of stuff in it it may not work either so mm -hmm. um considering that and i'm glad you said that because obviously there are a lot of, of young adults that have disabilities and and use mobility devices and you never know when your child's friend might have someone that exactly is using that and uh trying to think that as far as you can in that direction yeah and it's Tends to be rather expensive. Do you do you help people with dealing with the various grants and things that are available, or is that that's another person's? So usually the the projects I've worked on are, are privately funded. So somebody's you know renovating or they're are doing an addition, um, 
and the design work is is really consultive. So I'm not uh, doing necessarily the blueprints and things like that. It's much more just doing the edits of you're not going to like this door here. You're not going to like this you know mm -hmm. toilet positioned here. You're not going to like the height of this counter. And those are the things in the early phases of design that you can. Uh, you know, you can edit very quickly on it with a paper and pen or something, mm -hmm. but once it's in real life, uh, it's expensive to edit designs in real life, which is what renovations are. Right. Right. That's, that's my house, but <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm unlikely to have anybody older move in with me, but of course we, nobody knows what, what might happen. There's, right. there's so many things that can affect mobility. We have been speaking before about cultural differences. And I think that's sort of, I think Americans are coming around to the, I, do you think, do you remember Dynasty, the old one? Right. Yes. <laughs> They've already lived in the big house. Right. I, I think there was a sort of this picture in people's minds. And then, then we got very, very individualistic. And I think people are beginning to go back to realizing that it's nice to have family nearby and it's nice to have them live with you sometimes. Um, depending on where you're living in the country. I mean, you could, you know, have back-to-back -back houses. You could just be one, one street away that you could you could remain in your homes. And a lot of older people want to stay in their own home. Um, and where my husband's, my husband's from the Dominican Republic and it's standard that, you know, grandma lives with you or or you live with her. You know, it's, it's, it's far more common. Um, in England, I think we've, we've sort of, I haven't lived in Britain for a long time, but I do have family there. It's, it's becoming more what I consider standard American, um, mostly because people are more likely to move away from home for work. And then you marry somebody and they're from somebody else too. So right. it, it's more likely and therefore it it's less easy to keep an eye on people unless you physically move them in with you. So I, I think that this is this has broad appeal <laughs> across the two continents where this podcast is listened to. I shall make sure to mention oh, that. Nice. Oh, I didn't know that. that that's, that's great. And it, you're right. The cultural differences are part of what got me more mm -hmm. to where I'm moving now, which is much more into the, the mindset of caring for aging loved ones. Because the design part, you would think, is straightforward, but it brings in so much baggage of mm -hmm. how to, combining families or generations or uh, the financial aspects of that. And I think the cultural aspects are fascinating, the, the differences there and the expectations um, and we're at a, in an unprecedented era, as, as the number of women who are working in professional jobs, um, having children later in life, and maybe even working later in life. And right about that time that the career is peaking, or maybe you're looking around the corner at retirement, and you're getting the kids out of the house, and then oftentimes they're experiencing uh, some more either management or caregiving of their parents' affairs, health or financial, those types of things. And that's... Uh, Navigating that is what I want to focus on beyond, mm -hmm. in addition to the design, but just navigating that from a mindset perspective, uh, making sure that that we matter too, especially if, if we're in the mindset of giving and giving and giving to our careers and our kids. Yes, and then suddenly too. it's, you know, you get in the habit, I call it being a ticket taker and you keep taking tickets and taking tickets all the time. I go to work, take tickets all day. I get home, my kids have all these tickets for me to take and, and follow up on. And so it's a very natural movement I see for professional women to kind of exhale and think, now it's my time. Now I can relax and do what I want. And then no, right no, at the no. same time, it's, it's, oh, well, can your mother-in-law move in? And so my, uh, my passion right now is creating a safe space to explore that and make sure that mm -hmm. it's right for them. I'm not uh, a diehard advocate of multi-generational living if it doesn't work for you. Um, a lot of it depends on just the... I as a, as a woman, as a woman who cooks, <laughs> my immediate right. thought is kitchens, because if like, I barely want my husband in there because he puts things in funny places, right. but it, it really, that's so much part of a woman's identity, whether it should be or not. I mean, it depends on the woman, <laughs> but, right. the, but I would imagine your grandmother grew up cooking for the family. She did. How, she has her own, but she, so she lives completely separately at the moment. I, I don't mean you close. No, no, it, it's away, basically in a, an efficiency apartment that's attached to our, uh, it's just continuous with our own home. Uh, but what we did, she was a prolific, she had seven children and I don't know, upwards of 40 great grandchildren right now. So she's the matriarch of our family and uh, cooked and baked for everybody all throughout years, every birthday. She did my wedding cake. 
And when she moved in, I was worried about that identity loss because obviously we weren't going to put a, a brand new full kitchen in there. So what's in there is an induction range, which is nice because mm -hmm. there's no open flame. And no she chances. has some visual, uh, some visual issues, and we didn't want her having to navigate turning on and turning off an open flame. So between the induction range and she has a, a ninja type instant pot, you mm -hmm. know, uh, uh, air fryer type thing. And between those two items, she is happy as a clam. She cooks every night for herself, which I think is such an important physical and cognitive exercise to plan mm -hmm. it out, to complete it. Um, she cooks the food she likes to eat and uh, she will come help us. She, you know, she can't keep her out of the kitchen if she hears us making certain things and she'll come inspect. And and I think that's beautiful. Um, but my husband's a chef in our family. I don't cook at all. And it's been really fun to have him have her as a resource. And um, so she's, you know, the, the alpha as far as chicken fried steak and some other things that she's excellent <laughs> at here in, in South Texas. And and to have her has been a really beautiful thing. But you're right. I have seen, I saw one multi-generational home that basically had a double kitchen for that exact reason. Mm -hmm. There's one kitchen for the daughter and one kitchen for the mother-in-law <laughs> because yeah. I didn't think they wanted to have, uh, you know, those crossover. Yeah. And there may be some issues with, depends on, you know, I've been married for nearly 40 years now. So my mother's passed, but had, had we have an older family member come in. I'm already established. No, it's not a problem. Right. Uh, thinking maybe my daughter-in-law, that might be harder. You know, I, I might be the other the other generation. I might be the, the bread on the sandwich on the other side. Um, right. So I'd have to think about that hard. It would be hard. It, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's, that's your domain. You know? I, right. I, if it's her kitchen, I'd probably just sit on the couch rather than risk getting in you know moving stuff that's not mine <laughs> my, I, my son does not live nearby that i have three sons my youngest son lives in flagstaff and he's recently married and, and while i've known her for a long time it's been at a distance you know so passing for a week or two here and there we don't really know each other in the same intimacy of intimate way you would if she was living in the same town so um i worry about stepping on people's toes and i'm sure a lot of people do <laughs> And I'm so, I'm so glad you said that because I feel like that's really where my, my passion is right now is talking about those difficult conversations ahead of time, because mm -hmm. there can be a lot of assumptions. People tend to be very polite and, you know, not, not want to uh, impose and that can create some tension over time. So even if you mm -hmm. were to stay with your daughter-in-law for three months, um, part of this would be, what are the most difficult conversations that we can have ahead of time? Because she may be thinking, I would love to have my mother-in-law help me with this, but I'm afraid to ask because she might think I'm not good at being a cook right. or, you know, she might think that I'm taking advantage. And, and you, you would be shocked at how crazy the stories are, both in one person's head and the other person's head. And once those are explored, sometimes you see some really beautiful matches that, that wouldn't have been there if that conversation wasn't had, especially for multi-generational living, because that's a more permanent structural combination of two lives, but even going on vacation or um, planning an event together. I, I've noticed that a lot of people are just afraid to ask those questions up front. Can we cook together? Or, you know, if I misplace something, will you please tell me so that next time I can put it in the right, right place? And a lot of us just think, oh, it's too much trouble. And I'd rather just avoid it altogether. But when we're really, you know, have a lack of positive social interactions that are not virtual these days, um, you know, really missing out on something as, as beautiful as cooking together. I would hate for that to happen because of a, a design issue or a lack of a conversation. In three words or less, how could <laughs> you design a kitchen that would need to be sort of bi-level? Say somebody was in a wheelchair and right. another person is, I mean, I'm, I'm five foot two. So half the kitchens I go into aren't particularly usable. Top shelves are out of bounds. I can't get to them without a stepladder. And as I get older, I don't want to be doing that so much. Right. What kinds of things are you able to do within the limitations of a normal size kitchen, whatever that may be? Uh, you mean at a wheelchair level? Yes, a, 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 for, for both. So you can accommodate both, pe both sets right. of people. So, so it, it's easy to have a bi-level surface, meaning, um, so you might have the cooktop uh, at a what you would call a normal surface, maybe 32 mm -hmm. inches. Um, and then as a continuation of the island as a step down, to a roll-up uh, counter space. And that's usually what they have. And that way that the cutting, the preparation, 
the plating, all of that is done at the wheelchair level. It is very difficult to get a cooktop down to a wheelchair level safely right. because of the what has to go underneath the the cooktop. Um, and mm -hmm. if you, you can't put your knees up against something that's hot or, um, and that's another thing you have to always think about the skin under, you know, of the wheelchair user that's going to be in contact with anything. So um, there's been burn injuries of, of people that pull up under a sink and the sink is running hot water. And if the right. person is insensate, um, so there's a lot of protection that would have to go on the pipes. So I've seen a lot of great designs that way. And that includes people, not just for the food prep, but also for dining as well. Um, it makes it much easier for them. Uh, and then ovens, microwaves, and dishwashers are very easy to put at wheelchair heights. Um, the cooktop is probably, you've, you've identified what is the most, probably the most difficult one, unless you go to something like an induction range, like, a, you know, like we were referring to, uh, if somebody's uh, comfortable uh, using induction technology to, to, to cook, then that's much easier to do at that level. If you had an induction range at that height, are there any dangers to the normal standing height for an adult? And if you've got really multi-generational, that makes it easier for little ones to get their fingers there. Of course, induction, right. of course, is safer. So. Right. The biggest issue is going to be hot liquids. Um, and so there's all different levels of induction. And some of them are just a, a plate that you plug in and then mm -hmm. you put the pot on top. And that would be just as it would with anything else is if, if the, the liquid or the food itself is very hot, they can't be within proximity of a dog or a child that would be able to knock it over mm -hmm. onto somebody. Um, so you would, it, a lot of it depends on the context of who you're designing for mm -hmm. and understanding also, I mean, we haven't talked about cognitive limitations, but that's another big one. So if they can't remember to turn something off or they can't remember um, that it's hot and they need to move it out of the way and things like that. That would be another limitation to it. Yeah, I can see that. But but I, how somebody is this week and how they are this week next year, right? You know, it's it, it's going to be a moving goalpost. You're going to have to think ahead for a lot of those things. I think, or you just yeah. So that that's why I think the design. I I like to call it pluripotent design where it can be modified without massive renovation when you need to. Um, you don't, and I, and I talk to people about, you know, we, we, you know, we talk about designing for wheelchairs, less than 4% of seniors actually end up at a wheelchair level. It's, it's a fairly rare. Um, not that we shouldn't think about it, that that's an important thing, but I know we, I, in my head, I think a lot of people think, well, I'll just progress from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair <laughs> then, you know, and so you can you can think in those terms, but sometimes the, the best idea is not necessarily to collapse the whole design around that one idea. But you're right, having it pluripotent means ma making sure that the plugs are in places that will work for that person. Um, if they were to ever need a hospital bed or oxygen, a dedicated oxygen outlet, and some of that's just understanding what their current health conditions are yeah. uh, moving forward. Yeah, what, what triggered the question was the, the, the fact that we will all cognitively, there will be some loss, there'll be some loss of response speed right you know, those kinds of things right yeah so i'm really big about organization too it should be very easy to organize and very easy to clean and the more uh tasks that can be retained by someone as they age the better it is for their brain and so i don't like designing out function so if you don't mm -hmm. put the hookups for a washer and dryer then they're constantly either going to be relying on somebody to do the washing and drying of the clothes, or they're going to have to navigate your house and all of your piles of clothes in your own laundry room. And that was really big. And the builder, when I was doing it, the builder pushed back a bit because it's very unusual to have a second set of washer and dryer yeah. in, in the home, but it has been, it has worked out very, very well. And she appreciates that. She does it on her own time. Again, it's another cognitive and motor task that she owns, at least for now. She'll be 90 this year in, in November. It's another um, little help for me because I, I'm hoping to replace the washer dryer that we got with the house when we built it. Um, and I was thinking to go to a tower, but maybe that's not such a good idea because I don't want to have to change it again in five years when I can't reach up. Yeah, and that's funny you mentioned that um, because there's a lot of shoulder issues that come up mm -hmm. that make it difficult depending on where the um, the dials are. Um, well, I'm, I'm you... thinking wet towels, you know. Right, putting them up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but that said, you know, I talk to people, if you're doing an addition brand new, um, just put the hookups for the washer dryer, even if you're not going to put them in now, only because to add those later, 
is extremely expensive. Those are specialty, uh, that's a specialty hookup there. You can't just have a regular outlet. You'd have to have water there as well. And, and when they're doing it in the design phase before the sheetrock is up, you know, that's a, that's a little, you know, uh, one little turn in the water lines. It's not a big deal, but obviously after the fact, you're pulling out sheet rock and all that stuff. Yeah. You don't want to, that's expensive. <laughs> yeah. What other advantages do you think there are? Do you, are you, are you sort of pushing for people to have, or, or are you trying to remove the barriers to people having multi-generational homes? That, uh, the, the, one of the reasons multi-generational living is increasing is because of the scarcity and cost of housing in the United States. We enjoyed a period where houses were relatively inexpensive. And I think that fueled a lot of the, you know, spreading of families that they could live anywhere. They, they can move mm -hmm. for their best job and, you know, maybe end up throwing down roots uh, in a different area. And as we move towards that, my sentiment is if we're going to do it, let's do it well. And mm -hmm. do it and through good decisions at times where it doesn't cost extra money. That's been my focus. Not so much that um, there's so many emotional and psychological implications for living with someone, especially a mother-in-law, that I'm very sensitive to understanding that that's not right for everybody. So I, I don't come out mm -hmm. advocating because I feel like it's a very personal decision who you want to share your dwelling with. Uh, it happened to be an, an incredible move for us. And like I said, one of the best things I've ever experienced. But so I, I'm of the mindset, if you're going to do it, uh, and, you, and to be honest, obviously there's resources you'd have to have ahead of time to even build and do those. So I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of socioeconomic factors that wouldn't put people in a position to be able to think about this. A lot of the time they're just going home and clearing out a back bedroom because that's all they can do. But if you're a professional and have the resources to design it smarter from the beginning um, to make lives easier, to extend quality of life and function, that's really the space I'm in. Um, it, you know, Again, if we're going to do it anyway, let's do it with uh, these other things in mind and, and make the design durable and make the design serve that person longer term than it would as just versus an off-the-shelf generic you know, ensuite design with a bed and a bath. Now, for, for, if you were my consultant, I would have to ask you, what do you think about elevators? Because I have, I, there's no space to add on, right? Not, not cost in a cost-effective way at the ground floor level. I end up with no no yard at all. So really, the only way would be to to have an elevator to at least take people from the ground floor to the the main bedroom area. So there are very yeah. few, uh, pricey. There. <laughs> Well, the, the price is one. The second is very few homes are structurally built to the codes that would be required to get an elevator. And that's another example of, you know, if you're in the design phase of a brand new build, you can put, uh, you could select a closet area and you can build it out to support an elevator in the future mm -hmm. from, the, from the ground level, you know, I guess getting in at the very beginning. And I've seen people do that and you'll see a closet on the first floor and a closet on the second floor and they're they're stacked on top of each other on the floor plan and the reason for that is eventually you would have the elevator i will say uh, the cost is prohibitive for the vast majority of people and then the maintenance they're they're particularly mm -hmm. dangerous uh, and don't google elevator accidents <laughs> a horrific rabbit hole um of of home elevators not being quite as safe as even the ones we use you know in, in commercial settings but uh, that's where you get into the stair lifts and, and those types of things. And uh, between the cost and the, the other thing is, if it's a wheelchair user, we go back to, is there cognitively um, safe to use the elevator correctly? Mm -hmm. and, um, and sometimes those things are mutually exclusive. So they might be in a wheelchair, but then also not safe to use an elevator. And that's another way to think about it. So I, there's very few homes that are by the time you get one in and get it costed out is that that's a, a good solution for them. Mm. Interesting. Cause that's often their selling point is put in an elevator, stay in your own home. Don't have to move. Right. Right. Yeah. Another thing is, you know, whoever the intended user is going to be is to ensure that they want the elevator. I've seen so many renovations put in homes and it ends up that person is just not going to use them. Um, mm -hmm. So I've seen people have stair issues, even if there's a stair lift. They're, they they want to continue using the stairs. And so some of it is a really thorough uh, I think direct you do discussion. 
if they can walk slowly enough to not have a, a, a fall potential for that, then actually it would be better for them, wouldn't it? Yes. To, to have that activity. But right. So we are not always pro stair lift if the stairs are safe at that time. They can be, those can be put in fairly quickly. Those are not, mm -hmm. you know, like an elevator, that's a whole engineering thing, but stair lifts, not as much. Um, obviously the, the, you know, area needs to be able to hold the equipment, but, um, but yes, that, that you end up getting to a design point. And then at that point, there's that tricky gray area. And I know you've seen this um, in medicine of accommodating and accommodating, but then the medical needs can outpace the home. Mm -hmm. And that is a really, really difficult place for families to be in because at one point we're thinking, well, if there's a lot of falls, you know, are they going to be in an assisted living or a skilled mm -hmm. nursing facility? And that is really a hot button talk about an explosive topic that is even in my own family uh you know the anti-assisted living anti-nursing home sentiments very high almost to a point where it, it's uh, very challenging to even talk about it they have such strong sentiment against that yeah. and that could be cultural that could be just how our family does things uh, and that can make those conversations even harder now if you've got a big enough house that you could have living help help as well and afford it live in yet another generation yes, yes. Uh, and sometimes you you know the the design would need to accommodate a living caregiver so your that design challenge is even a little bit different and then part of the design is also making sure the caregiver has enough room in the shower the caregiver has enough room in the bathroom if you just mm -hmm. go straight 36 inch doors um, and level transitions that's fine for an active yeah, some, Somebody's got to be with them. Yeah. Somebody's got to be with them. And if you forget yeah. about that person, that person gets injured because the design isn't thinking about them ahead of time, then that can, that makes it harder all over, you know, to, to keep a caregiver for that person. What kind of qualifications do you have for the work that you're, you're offering now? Because clearly this wasn't covered in residency. It was, well, it was a lot of your information came up in that residency. Right. Right. So uh, most of, I mean, obviously from the design standpoint, most of it I draw from my clinical experience of working with people that have trouble discharging from the hospital because they can't go home or the home won't accept them back or isn't suitable for their needs. And then my personal experience designing um, with my grandmother. And then there's also a certification, certified aging in place specialist, which is through the uh, National Home Builders Association. And that can be for building professionals, uh, some occupational therapists and, and things like that. But there are certifications that you can get. Um, another one of them is called the uh, Certified Living in Place Professional or the CLIP certification. And that will give you enough tools to, to move forward. I don't market myself as an architect. I'm certainly not um, at that level. I, much more of a design consultant mm -hmm. and editor um, in that space. And an explainer of what those things might, right. what might be coming. Yeah. Think of it more great. like a design advocate. <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that I look at it and I think completely differently about the person who's going to be in that space and then offer ideas and solutions that will make the space more suitable for that person. Right. But you could consult, for example, should I suddenly lo have lots of money? You could consult so I could find out how you think it might be a good idea for me to alter my house so that my daughter-in-law and I could share a kitchen. Yes. You know, as we get older, it, it could come to any of us that would be helpful. And I'd love to have more people living in my house because right. I do come from a, a culture that's, we had my grandmother live with us for years when I was a child. Oh, nice. And yeah. She had um, rheumatoid arthritis and very, before people had their hips replaced on a regular basis. Um, how, how, what was that experience like for you? Because I, I would imagine I my it. children, yeah. <laughs> loved it. You loved it. What did you love about it? Uh, she was actually fairly bedridden. She wasn't able to, oh. to do very much. Um, she was in the, the box room. And I was we just in Britain. It's just a, a room that wouldn't qualify as a bedroom, but people can put beds in there. Um, and um, it was just great. It was an extra person to listen to my woes as I entered. I was pre-adolescent. So that sort of 10, 11 age group. And it was just, it was just lovely. We, there, I had three sisters. I was the eldest. I could go moan to my grandmother about my mother carefully yeah <laughs> but, but I mean it was just it was just lovely having her with us what did your mother think I, about it what was her experience as I was, I'm pretty sure she was quite happy with it she did a huge amount for the family um because we also had at one point in our three-bedroom house um 
also four of my cousins because my oh my goodness so she had four she had eight children in the house not necessarily different from a lot of people on the street there were other people who had seven children of their own so it wasn't um you know it wasn't particularly remarked on <laughs> necessarily but she had an, a, a six-month-old Stuart was maybe pushing two and then sort of in, and then the rest of us sort of merged so we were like 10 through six months wow. so yeah as and um and as I have pointed out several times on this podcast, I am old. Therefore, we're talking 1950s, 1960s. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the mod coms yeah. we have now, we don't have. Disposable diapers? Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I love having that reference point around. My, my kids were complaining one day about getting up early for school. And my grandmother chimed in. Well, I used to get up at 3.30 in the morning and milk cows and work on the dairy before I went to school. And that shut them up for a while. So <laughs> it's very nice to have some, you know, reality checks. His kids have a very luxurious lifestyle compared to what she grew up in the uh, 30s and 40s. So that that's always a fun, yeah, I'm, ad, I'm, you know, add-on. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember our first tele telephone and our first television set. Oh, wow. We were one of the first people on our street to get a television set. Probably 57. Would you be comfortable if I asked you some questions about sort of your own uh yeah i got control of, to... i can edit away go ahead okay ask me. <laughs> so uh, i want to uh, part of you know like we talked about the design and my uh a thing that i'm really focused on right now is the conversations before the design and, and what sort of the expectations are and i'm wondering and you said you were around 70 right i'm about so, sure well i'm an expert it was 70 Awesome. And so my question is, how have you approached your own advanced directives or life planning? And how have you shared that with your children? My, well, it's a will and copies and advanced directives. Um, that That's always the three sons share it and they'll hit them in order of arrival, basically. Okay. <laughs> We're all pretty much on the same page. So I don't think that's been, it wasn't a difficult conversation to have just as we had conversations about organ donation when, when the kids were quite small. That's awesome. That was lovely. Yeah. Well, so, so you didn't, there was no drama about having a meeting about it. That was very matter of fact. And no, that's it was, been... it was very, I mean, they all knew verbally. We just, when we got our wheels drafted, we just made it official. Um, it was, it was always very straightforward. Um, the issue of who's going to live with whom we've that's sort of a, a rolling thing so far the other two the older sons are very close by um neither of them have living conditions where we could move into them so they'd have to move into us at this point right. um but yeah and we also have i don't know if it's very calm we're we're pretty comfortable the idea that money belongs to the family I, I don't mean it's you know we're not trust babies and stuff but it's just like money is a tool whoever right. needs it gets it so i i those conversations have been pretty comfortable i think and, and the, what i usually get when i try to say something well of course you've got this and this and this and you'll get this you'll get would you shut up mom <laughs> <laughs> well, like, i'm not supposed to pop the clogs yet <laughs> Well, I'm glad that, that that that's so open. And I think that has to start really young. Like those kind of conversations, mm -hmm. we just normalize that we have, you know, difficult conversations. What, what have you talked to them about, if any, or what would the expectation would be if you needed assistance in the home that your, your spouse wasn't able to provide for whatever reason? Would that, the idea is that one of them will move in and help or that one of them would get a caregiver oh. or what does that look like? We haven't decided who would do what, but... I mean, somebody might surprise me and act what I would consider out of character, but I think pretty much the whole family has that same mindset. We had that with my parents, um, my sisters and I. I, I think it's just, I, I suspect it's a cultural thing. And, how and do you that think we've passed on to them, even though they're American. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask about, because that you're, that's kind of the melting pot of the different yeah. cultural approaches. And so how did you... 
um, has this been an, an overt open conversation that when I need help, I expect you to move in? Or is it an, when well, you say an understanding? Like, I'm, how... I'm calling a family meeting. No, it has come back uh, on occasion. We've said, I mean, the kids have spontaneously told us when they were younger that they, they will help. And, you know, they're going to, they're, they're going to decide where their house will be depending on, you know, we, I can't be at the top of a mountain because you wouldn't be able to get in. Mom, right. That kind of stuff. Those kind of spontaneous conversations, but we don't, we haven't. Had, we had a conversation when we last did our, redid our wills um, about who would be the executor because now they're all perfectly competent. And so who would be the most likely to be findable and who would have the most time <laughs> available, right. be the most organized. Um, those kinds of, those can be a little bit because, you know, there's a sort of birth order assumption. <laughs> birth order um, and geography, right? And yeah, yeah. <laughs> geography wins at the moment. And, and a lot of it, uh, it comes down to modeling. And so you're modeling for your children as young as however young they were, mm -hmm. that we, we go and take care of this loved one in this way. And it varies quite a bit. And, and there's a lot, there can be a lot of mental drama over how far somebody's able to go either financially or career-wise. And, you know, a lot of careers can't afford mm -hmm. somebody to, um, you know, stop working for that long, that period of time. And it really just brings up a lot of interesting questions that each each individual experience is so different but the cultural influence is strong and it sounds like although you and your husband are from very different cultures they kind of converge on this mm -hmm. specific topic fairly nicely is that right yeah actually <laughs> somebody said you know why did you marry her kind of not in a nasty way <laughs> oh my god what do you want her? wait a minute <laughs> but but um it, it so for him it was we obviously have the same feeling about family. You know, there has to be money to fuel a lot of the caregiving activities. Oh, yes. And it'd be like, well, yes. is mom going to use her money or I'm going to use my money? And and the, the familial beliefs about money pour into even that phase of life of who's going to pay for what. And the, the bigger thing I see in my age group, I'm in my 40s, is that a lot of us, understandably for privacy reasons, are completely unaware of the financial situation of the parents. It could be anywhere from they've saved a lot of money and, you know, mm -hmm. they have a great retirement and they're going to have great benefits down to, you know, I thought they had money, but they actually have a lot of debt, which is going to limit some of right. the uh, caregiving options long-term. Uh, and, and that's a sticky, you know, it's a sticky privacy autonomy type type thing. But there are uh, several states in the United States that have what are called filial laws, where the state can come after children if the uh, their parent is costing the state money and doesn't have Medicaid coverage, it's not enforced in most states. But the fact that there are laws, a, a, it would be a nightmare when you consider some of the family dynamics I come across. Absolutely, and that's why they're probably not enforced. But just the idea that in in these states, they're and they're written differently by state. But basically, essentially, if there's a, a person who ends up in a state funded Medicaid type program nursing home and uh, Medicaid, or they come into a nursing home and the state is paying for it, but they don't have coverage, then they have the right to find the next of kin, a child, and if that person has means to, to go after that as well. Yeah, but that's not very forward thinking. What are they gonna do when they retire and they right. need money? <laughs> I don't know that it makes any sense, but when I started researching this and found this, it's not in the state I live in, in Texas, but, uh, and again, that they're not, easily enforced for all the practical reasons mm -hmm. you can think of. And, and most people, when they need Medicaid, can get qualified for Medicaid. But the other issue is Medicaid does have a five-year look back. And mm -hmm. so if a child was getting, say, 10000 a year for the last five oh, years, so. Medicaid can surely go back, and they will, yeah. go back yeah. and reclaim that money. So that's probably, that's the more uh, actual thing that's happening, is they're, mm -hmm. and they're going after anybody who was given money in that time frame. And, and then reclaiming that, and then reclaiming the home when it, when that person passes away. So that's how the mm -hmm. state makes up for what you'll see is the, the rapid expansion of, of nursing homes, especially here in Texas. I'm, I'm sure it's everywhere else, but, you know, we can't drive down any street and not see a new uh, skilled nursing facility going up. And uh, part, part of that is just the, the housing issues. The, a lot of people are not in position to help take care of parents or grandparents, those types of things. Yeah. Well, they're here in the Northeast, at least, and probably across the country. Younger people have a hard time affording anywhere to live anyway. 
So they right. may well choose or be forced to go and live with their parents. They get multi-generational the other way. That was the the largest the largest growth during the pandemic of multi-generational mm -hmm. living was young adults moving back in with their parents. It wasn't um, adults moving their elderly parents in with them. It was the reverse of what you would think. And I, I even joked with some people about trying to design out the possibility for your child to room to to um, <laughs> come back home. And one of my good friends is buying a house right now, and she said, "I think that secondary bedroom is kind of small." and I said, maybe that's a good, they should leave the secondary bedroom very small and not something that any 25 year old can get too comfortable in and, uh, you know, to help motivate them out of the house too. So I, I love thinking of design as a tool, just like you, men, you know, mentioned, we have so many different tools we can use and design is one of them to, to bring about behaviors and feelings that you want and try to, you know, design against things that you don't want. So if there's a behavior mm -hmm. that you want, I love the idea of designing that behavior into the home at the beginning, uh, whether it's a reading nook or an exercise area or a, you know. A, are you are you in favor of sort of the, the, the kitchen being sort of part of the living room? I don't know what you call it. It's completely open plan. Oh, the, the open plan? That's an interesting you asked that. that. That's a very personal preference depending on who's in the kitchen. So mm -hmm. some people love the idea that they're cooking and they keep the mess. That the biggest complaint, one of the bigger complaints about the open kitchen is that a lot of people when they're cooking create a lot of mess isn't the right word my husband would not like that word but but there's a lot of pots and Ev pans evidence and of their work evidence of their work and <laughs> and if they're particularly clean per uh you know or pride in you know having a very clean surface mixing sort of the uh dining room and living room in with that space can be challenging so i have seen some kitchens going back to a more private setting but mm -hmm. a lot of that's the the personal um the I, personal I I like to just be me in the kitchen, but all of my kitchens have been eat-in, although I have a dining room. Mm -hmm. And usually if I'm cooking and I have people over there in the kitchen anyway. <laughs> so right, right. Other than saying, get out, which would be rather rude. Um, I just, you know, you just put up with it. Sometimes people will start doing the dishes. Sometimes they'll put things in the wrong place. I'll live. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have a, a completely open and kitchen design, but my grandmother, when you know where she lived before, when she was still raising kids and grandkids, and she had a, basically a galley kitchen to herself. Right. Well, yeah, and and your grandmother's generation. When my when I think back to my the grandmother that lived with us, her her original house. In fact, her sons ended up living there until they died. Um, was a what we call a two up two down you you went into in the very narrow hallway there was a, a reception area sort of in the on the side and then you went into the dining room and through to the kitchen I didn't have a bathroom when I was a kid the bathroom was just thought it was outside um and then steps to to the two bedrooms upstairs she had eight kids well seven surviving children um and her kitchen had a bathtub in it <laughs> Oh my gosh! <laughs> so very limited, and she was a and she was a professional cook. That's how she made her. She would go out to work. She did catering stuff. Oh wow! But so um, when I think about it, when I when I complain about how little space I have in my kitchen, no matter how big it is, it's never going to be big enough because right horizontal surfaces tend to get things on them all the time. Um, but when I think about, it, I mean, she had a, a standard small stove. Uh. uh training board that she used as a cutting board. I don't, I don't think she had a table in there. I don't think about it. It's a long time ago. She had a table in there. And she had a pantry because there, there weren't fridges. So you opened the pantry and there was marble to keep the, the um, milk and cheese on and the butter. It, it's funny you mentioned that. I, um, I think I've mentioned to you that my, my mother's second husband is from the UK. He's from Sully Hole. And mm -hmm. when he came here uh, about 10 years ago, he just remarked at how massive the houses and kitchens oh, yeah. seemed to him. And he's currently living in a, about a 1400 square foot, three bed, two bath. And he's, he's like this in my area would be a mansion. This is yeah. so much space and he loves cooking. And, and it, it is so interesting to have that different perspective because I, that's, I, I think of that as kind of the standard floor plan, standard kitchen size and, and it's all perspective. Right. And he was mm -hmm. telling me just how cramped the, 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 the areas can be and. And when we were talking about stairlift, it was his mother who they wanted to put a stairlift in for, and she was going up and down the stairs on her bottom mm -hmm. and refused to ever have the stairlift put in. She said that she didn't need that. And 
And so that even that cross, you know, Atlantic conversation was, was <laughs> going on uh, just in the last couple of years, trying to, to make her more safe. But a lot of it was personal preference. She absolutely, um, she ended up passing last year, but um, absolutely refused that you know, the entire time. And, and she said, I, I don't need that. So I always thought about, I've never got the chance to go to that house, but I just heard how narrow it was, but then mm -hmm. they had a she had a beautiful garden in the back um, that I wish I could have seen. I saw pictures of it, but yeah, so the perspective has been nice to have somebody here from the UK in my family that talks mm -hmm. about just how lucky we are to have the size of kitchens we have. Well, but then he said it's had... a lot more cleaning too. That's what he always tells yes. me. Yes. You have to clean you, a lot more. You also could have had that experience had you done your residency in New York City, because then you would have had you know, a shoebox, because that's, that's what you right. have in the city. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, they say everything's bigger in Texas, and Texas just has so, such an expansive well, yeah. geography here. And so I think of the most countries. So right. Exactly. <laughs> so we, we're very spoiled in, in that direction. But yeah, so it's been it's been nice to have somebody from I don't different remember, perspective. I don't <laughs> remember why, but I looked up the size of the King Ranch one time. Oh. I, was, I was interested in the square the square mileage of Delaware. So I'm in Delaware, which is a tiny state. We have less than a million people. And I, I don't know what it was that made me look at it, but but the King Ranch is three quarters of the size of Delaware. <laughs> it's insane. I don't doubt that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that there's a lot of houses on that ranch too. So I've always mm -hmm. been wondering what was out there. Um, but yeah, that that's I didn't know that. That's a cool factoid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we are definitely out of time. I'm gonna have to cut lots of bits out. <laughs> no, I've enjoyed talking. <laughs> so it's to very you. much. Thank you so much. It was lovely. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Please, please come back when you when you have something else you have to say. Oh, and uh I will put all of your details, of course, in the show notes for people. Do you have a website or is it just word of mouth at the moment? Uh, my website is RebeccaTapiaMD.com. And they can contact you for design ideas or? I have some, uh, some a way to contact me about design. And then I'll have a course coming this summer to talk about mindset for supporting aging parents. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us at Myth Magic Medicine. If you have found this episode useful, you can apply for free CME credit through the link provided in the transcript. If you're not a medical professional, please remember, while we're physicians, we're not your physicians. So please consult with your own healthcare professional if you think something you have heard might apply to you or a loved one. Until next time, bye-bye.